want to do is if we see any barriers holding back the industry, we want to get in there and help relieve those barriers so that we can take automation to the next level. And so anything that will help the macroeconomics of that industry helps Intel. Welcome to Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat, where the best minds in the drone world come to engage. I'm Richard Fisher, publisher at Inside Unmanned Systems, coming to you live from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., with your hosts, Sean Bullard and James Poss. Hello, I'm Sean Bullard. And I'm James Poss. Together, we are Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. Sean, what are we covering for the final in our series on Remote ID? Well, James, we're covering remote ID standards. As we discussed in an earlier episode, the FAA is expected to release a notice of proposed rulemaking on their remote UAS ID rules sometime later this year. And however, rumor has it those FAA remote ID draft rules won't see the light of day until early next year. Okay, so you're saying remote ID will be delayed for another year, according to your intel. Uh, The simple answer is a big yes. I believe the rumors that say we won't see them for a very long time are true. Okay, folks. Well, with the rule delay, that makes the ASTM Remote ID Committee standards the only thing industry has to go by, which is not a bad thing. It really doesn't make sense to me that the FAA would defer to to ASTM standards without a rule, but it appears to be exactly where we are. So even if the FAA does get its remote ID NPRM out in July, as you know, a lot of the government sources are saying, we still aren't going to see a real rule for two years. So it sounds like we could face chaos on the horizon without the FAA providing the guardrails for burdening industry. So thank goodness for ASTM. So uh, no puns intended there, I'm sure, but uh, I would wholeheartedly agree. Uh, the longer the FAA sits on remote ID, the longer it takes to receive public comment, the longer it takes to solve the problem, the bigger the problem gets. I don't see the drone OEMs complying with ASTM standard if there's no rule to compel them. Just hypothetically, particularly the biggest consumer drone maker, DJI. Yeah, I, well, maybe. We'll, 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 we'll ask our guests on that. Hopefully, hopefully they, they will comply with the standard without the rule, but I, I ain't taking bets on that. Well, regardless of what happens, we've got one of the most knowledgeable remote ID folks in the entire country on today's Inside Unmanned Systems drone beat. As the chair of the ASTM F38.02 committee responsible for setting industry remote ID standard, our guest knows what tech industry chose for remote ID. Yes, indeed, James. I'm really looking forward to this episode. I can't wait to see if we're going with LTE, ADSB, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, or something else blended, or even all the above. Right. There's certainly a lot we're going to learn in this final episode that reveals the school solution to remote ID. So, as we discussed early in the series, the remote ID rules are not going to see the light of day until 2020. True, Sean? Right. And there's billions of dollars at play here with multiple industries, from LTE to Bluetooth to Wi-Fi and others vying for market position. Right. And there seems to be a lot of stake here, such as aviation safety, public privacy, national security, you name it. Right again, James. And that is why you and I have invited Gabriel Cox with Intel Corporation to be on Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat 
so he can dissect this month's remote ID series. As the chair of ASTM's F38.02 Remote ID Committee and Intel Corp's drone systems architect, who knows better than he as to what the future holds? Welcome aboard, Gabriel. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. All right, Gabe. Hey, thanks for joining us from California. We know it's uh, uh, a lot earlier than it is here at the National Press Club in D.C., so you, you get extra points for, uh, for being alert. Okay. No problem. Good morning. All right, so before we go into this, could you, you just tell us a little bit about your background and, and what, is, what is Intel Corporation's interest in uh, being on, uh, taking such a prominent role on ASTM's UAS Remote ID Committee? Well, we've been hearing from multiple regulators worldwide, not just the FAA, that remote ID is one of the top priorities to unlock other use cases in the skies. And what, what we want to do is, um, if we see any barriers holding back the industry, we want to get in there and and help relieve, relieve those barriers so that we can take automation to the next level. And so anything that will help the macroeconomics of that industry helps Intel. So in that um, in that timeline, and and you're in the thick of developing these standards, and and so can you give us how long do you think it will be before we start to see some of these standards that you were discussing within your 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 subcommittee there? It's it's going to be pretty soon. Uh, we we actually did a round of balloting. We already sent them to ballot once. And uh, that was just last month. And it, it looked pretty good. We got about a 96% uh, approval rating in the, oh, in the wow. ballot. Okay. Uh, there was a couple of things we, were taking, we took it out of ballot and we're working on, mainly for harmonization with the European Commission's new ruling that came out. And it had certain requirements, and we want to stay harmonized with that as well. Right. Uh, and so, so there's a few things we're, tweaks we're doing to it, and we'll be sending it to ballot again probably by the end of this month. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty impressive. Okay, now I got to ask you a procedural question. So I, I know we were on the arc together, I don't know, almost two years ago, yes, and sir. we were given you know, you know, some guidance from the FAA. How on earth do you do a standard for remote ID before there's rules out, even draft rules out for remote ID? How, how, did, how did you guess what the FAA wanted? It's it's real tricky. We actually have FAA uh, members participating in the work group. We have so we have just not only um, industry uh, stakeholders in there and and organizational stakeholders, but there's also some government stakeholders in there as well. But but because of the the, the trickiest part is because of the I believe it's the Administrative Procedures Act, and once they go into this pre NPRM level. There's a bit of a firewall of information flow between the FAA and, and even the standards group that's trying to do this for the FAA. Um, it can be hindering and it can be tricky. Uh, we get a between things like these RFI that came out and, and other hints in the NPRM and just what we're hearing on the streets, we, we try to do the best we can to align with what the FAA is looking for. And then, of course, this ARC that, that both of us worked on here uh, some time ago, has given us a lot of guidance as well. So could you embellish a little bit more uh, for the listeners on the uh, your reference to the RFI? Yeah, there, there's well there's there's things in the RFI where they they asked about um, different security components, different online components, how would you do this, how would you do that? And and um, there was just some details in there that that were in, 
interesting and it I think it, it gives a little bit of insight for information that the FAA was looking for. I, I we can only give that so much weight. I mean, we we do have the direct participation of them in in the work group, but there is there is sort of a a bit of firewalling of information flow, unfortunately. Okay, so do you think there's a remote possibility that you completely guessed wrong? <laughs> You're going to have to redo the standard here when the rules come out, or do you feel pretty there, comfortable? There are, I suppose. There, I mean, at the very beginning when we started, we, we had, I think, better information flow, uh, and I think they, they reached this point in, in terms of maturity of, of the, uh, the process to where they had to stop talking so much. But um, there's there's always that possibility. But also, I, I think they're they're even given direction from Congress to use consensus standards as as an implementation for a lot of their rules. So we're we're hoping we're pretty well aligned with them. I haven't really. I I'm hoping somebody throws a red flag in in what we're doing if if they feel we're not. But I, I think we're pretty well aligned, Good. and we're also. Yeah, internationally aligned, and that's a good indicator yeah. so, as well. You and a, a multi-billion-dollar industry worldwide. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, can can you give us kind of just a uh, maybe a, a, a snapshot of what the standard says? No, no. Let's be more formal, Randy. Give us a drone beat, drum beat for this one, because this is the key question. What's in the standards? What's it? Yeah, and I, and I'd be happy to talk about it and and some of the content. So. So the the main thing it, it gives a few options first of all and and the way, what I what I would expect in terms of an implementation is for a regulator be it the FAA or some other CAA regulator to take the the standard and we took all the per, <clears throat> all the numeric parameters and we put them down in a section where they could be overridden like how many times do you send updates and how fresh does the data need to be and so on we put all those parameters in a table that we have a suggested uh, numerics for those, but if they need to be adjusted by a regulator and referred to from an FAR and changed, they, they could always do that. Um, we also put multiple mechanisms of, of communicating remote ID in the standard. We put a Bluetooth mechanism. There's, there's uh, what they call legacy Bluetooth transmissions. There's a new Bluetooth 5 mechanism that actually has a long-range uh, that goes four times the range, and believe it or not, Bluetooth is not just for mice and keyboards. You can actually get um, a very long range out of it, surprisingly long range, like up to a kilometer or so, wow. more than you would expect from something like Bluetooth. Um, and we have a mechanism for doing it via Wi-Fi as well, defined in the standard, and then online over whether it's LTE or whatever your mechanism is for getting online. We have a that defined as well. So, Gabriel, you've mentioned regulator multiple times here, and creating a new regulator, and you've 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 said it several times. We're in an environment here in Washington D.C. where that's almost like a dirty word, creating a new regulator. Can you can you tell us why it's so important to have this? What you know the the context that you've you've mentioned here. Yeah, and and I'm I'm probably your one of perspective. Those, yeah, I'm probably one of those people that that. Sometimes uh, overregulation is a dirty word for me as well. Um, certainly, overregulation is. But I, I think in the in the field of aviation, there's something. There's a special relationship that aviation has with regulation that has allowed aviation to work. Not, not just allowed it to work, that has enabled it to work. You know, look at all the flight operations we do today in and out of airports and everything. I'm not sure if that would work very well without some regulation 
Um, and, and likewise, for integration of UAS in, into the airspace, I think we're, it's actually going to be regulation that becomes an enabler for the industry as opposed to and in many industries that it, it might uh, retard the industry a bit or something oh man but i gotta tell you i'm bummed i, th- I think i just heard you say that your standard is going to incorporate both broadcast and network lte solutions i thought you were going to pick one or the others we're going to have the epic battle of winterfell here like in, in game of thrones but you're saying you decided to go with all it's yeah that's a that's a we did not Cage match that debate <laughs> in the standard. We could have easily. Right, done we're going to use cage match more often. Yeah, That's a good I'm one. writing that down. Yeah. Now, even, now, one good thing the FAA did when they first came into the work group, and, and I think they wanted the output of the work group to have a good bit of integrity and respect um, by the agency. And therefore, they encouraged us invite everybody, invite whoever you think is going to be against the stuff you're working on, invite them to. And so so if you think you're leaning broadcast, invite the guys who are in the, the cell phone industry and so on. And so we did that. We, we, we invited people who were planning on doing deliveries with drones. Uh, you know, Wing is in there. Amazon is in there. Um, uh, DJI is in there. So everybody, a lot of the well-known, well-known suspects in terms of stakeholders are in there. And, uh, and I think it's uh, taken all their input as, as given – Given the, it's truly a, a consensus standard in, in terms of given input for, for all these stakeholders. Okay, um, I guess that's why but, they call it consensus and not cage match, which, which we are going to use. Yeah, yeah, um, and and the thing, the thinking is, is that maybe for different things, different different uh, media or are more appropriate. Perhaps in a very rural area where there's limited LTE coverage. Uh, a lot of the use cases for UAVs are in agriculture or agricultural use cases or, or pipeline and, and, and uh, power line inspections where perhaps your network coverage may be limited. There, that might still be a place where you need some broadcast coverage. And, and likewise, in, in urban areas, maybe that's, that's more appropriate for um, using a network mechanism. Okay. All right. So no cage matching. Hey, so listen, and this kind of plays into uh, a couple of themes here, particularly – doing standards without guidance um did you consider both the physical or what i like to call anti-tamper uh and cybersecurity in the standard i mean because what we talked about a lot of times was making remote id integral to the flight of the aircraft where you know you couldn't fly your drone without remote id and we were going to put anti-tamper on there to make sure that nobody could do it and then we spent a lot of time talking about cybersecurity. Did, did you address both physical and cybersecurity? Let me tackle both of those separately. Okay, I, fair I, enough. I, I don't have a good answer for you on the first one or maybe I have a disappointing answer for you on the first one. Oh man. Um, so so the, where we try to focus is on we're thinking about interoperability and and how do you send how do you send remote ID in a way that we know somebody who's trying to receive it will be able to receive it? We, then we we got into this process of parsing what belongs in the standard and what belongs to the regulator to decide what what that limitation should be. And there are some things like um, like the tamper-proofness of it. There were some the physical tamper proofness of it, if that's a word at all, <laughs> should should possibly be left in the hands of the regulator to decide what level that should be. 
Mm-hmm. Um, for for example, in the in the EU, they've they've passed the the European Commission has passed a, a, a regulation that defines a lot of things about remote ID, and it says the user cannot change anything but the I think it's the uh, the pilot ID and most of the other things the user cannot access. Now, how that is implemented down into um, uh, fine grain regulation we has is yet we have yet to see, but but they've already uh, put that through European Parliament and and declared it as such. I could see something similar happening here with the FAA where they do something like that. So so we didn't we didn't see a need to standardize on on the physical aspect of it on the the cyber security front we we came up with a model we of of a plug, pluggable authenticity approach and and we have a vision of the authenticity level required would be appropriate based on the airspace they're flying in. And let me let me give an example to an analog. Okay. In, in our analog world, uh, what is required to go to a conference? Well, you might just need a business card or something, and or or for uh, other forms of ID domestically, your driver's license seems to work pretty well. If you're flying internationally, then it ratchets up to you need a passport. And and there's a lot of authenticity verification of your identity that goes along with that passport that doesn't exist, say, with a business card or possibly not even with a driver's license. Similarly, in the cyber world, when you're providing some authentic authenticity token there's different levels that it could go through and let me let me add one more if you're to walk onto say a military base or one of our um i don't know uh, nsa or something like that well mm-hmm. even then even a passport's not good enough right you, you have a even a, a better type of id or some kind of clearance you might need so and, you're flying over a you know nuclear facility or something like that yeah so if you're doing that so whoever's monitoring that airspace should have a certain expectation of credentials they're presenting, which may not be the same requirements of somebody flying over a farm in Iowa or something. And and so we have a place, we have payloads specifically uh, set aside where you can put your authenticity credentials and and then for e- for whoever's managing the airspace, they verify whether that match what is required for that airspace, and then they act upon it if if they don't like what they see. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, Gabriel, we got to take a, a quick break to hear from our sponsor. But uh, when we get back, uh, let's uh, drill down more about uh, how this system works as a whole. Thank you for joining Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat, sponsored by Rodian Schwartz, a leader in test and measurement for radar and EW, satellite technology, avionics, navigation, and guidance. Rodian Schwartz products help protect critical infrastructures with drone detection and defense solutions. Learn more at InsideUnmannedSystems.com. So, Gabriel, can you give us a sense of uh, the costs or the effort that will be needed in regard to infrastructure for for all of this? Uh, did Did you even take cost into account when you did this? We we took all. It, it actually was a very important thing in our in our guiding principles up front, and and we had some guiding principles up front. And we in in a document called the tour, the terms of reference. And um, so that's kind of what we got together and did first was do 
our constitution, if you will. And that would we would go back and refer to that sometimes. And sometimes we needed to use it if we were to include or exclude something. Um, and one of the guiding principles that, in general, in order to have a high level of participation, the cost needed to be low in such that it's proportional with what the low in proportion to what the products cost out there. You know, there's there's aircraft that could be subject to this that cost only a hundred dollars. Um, it, it would be really That's difficult either on that industry or even on compliance if 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 the the cost of compliance costs another hundred dollars or another two hundred dollars. So you needed like a that. minimum point of entry. Yeah, yeah, and so, and so so some of our our methods of compliance that we have, like let's take the Bluetooth method for instance. Mm-hmm. You can get you can buy the modules quantity one off of the internet or, or Amazon or Mauser or something like that for about five bucks. And there's then there's an antenna and that'll cost a couple of dollars for so. In, terms of the actual hardware adder cost, you're, you're talking in, you know, single digits of dollars in terms of what it might add to the cost of, of an aircraft. Um, now, if somebody were to wrap that up into a retail product, then the market's going to decide what what something like that would cost. But we know that we've, we've chosen solutions that have a very low, by using some commodity devices that are in everybody's cell phones and everything, we know that you can build these solutions for a very low cost. Wow. So let's talk more about the system itself. Um, did you spend a lot of time uh, worrying about how local law enforcement would interact with this system? And and, and basically, you know, we've been using Mayberry RFD as our, our sheriff's department. So how, how would Barney Fife, or Mayberry RFD, or Sheriff uh, Andy Griffith interact with this system under your standards? So the cool thing is, is that Barney Fife these days has has a smartphone. Um, Good point. Even, and one bullet. Mayberry. Okay. Yeah, even in Mayberry. Um, so so uh, so one of the things that came up as as a guiding principle is is that we want this application to be compatible with smartphones. And a lot of when we talk to various law enforcement agencies, some of them have you know lots of budget to buy various things some of them can have a hard time getting any money at all for buying anything and so one so we have kind of this universal baseline that if you have a, a smartphone you could you could receive remote id and additionally one of the things that the public safety uses to be their to kind of get expand their coverage is the public themselves you look at how license plates, uh, or, or at least behavior in driving works, and malbehavior in driving is often reported by a, a just another citizen who writes down the license plate. And so we thought, we thought, and not only we thought, but we've we've been told that having a capability like that for remote ID would be important as well. So since since it works with smartphones, even the entire public could possibly you know, identify the person who's who's causing a problem in their backyard or something like that. Wow. So your smartphone is your pocket uh, remote ID system. Either you're going to get it over the network, your LTE, or you're going to, I guess, turn on your, your Bluetooth and, and look for, you know, something that looks like a drone on there or your Wi-Fi. Did I get that right? That's right. That's right. And 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 for fixed locations like secure area or, or sensitive areas or airports or something like that, 
they could perhaps install uh, fixed receivers and even extend the range because, uh, you know, a cell phone has a little bitty antenna and everything in it. And if you if you can create a fixed station with nice large antennas or an array of directional antennas, you can perhaps extend the possible range that you could cover in, in a network of, of fixed receivers. Okay, so let's flip it from Mayberry RFD to on the FAA, DOD, and, and, and DHS. I mean, how does that work for them? Are they kind of like super users on this system they could see all, or, or did you even address that as part of the standard-making process? Um, we, didn't, we didn't really address where their, their limits lie. We did address that with the public, on, at least with regard to network. With, with regard to network-based remote ID, and we have written in the standard that we have this thing called a display provider, and that the display provider for a network, when when a individual user tries to look at an area, it it will limit how big of an area he can look at. It's something like three point six kilometers, or something like that. Um, so so the area is limited by the area you're in. Um, so it doesn't like an individual couldn't look at the entirety of the United States necessarily. Now whether or not there's a bunch of aggregator um, uh, listeners that that cover the earth that similar to flight aware 24 or one of those things that we have you know, that has, we have yet to see that right do you think they'll implement standards before the rules come out which according to our intelligence the faa is kind of you know made that broad hint to open to industry hey it's going to take a couple of years to get the rules out you guys ought to go ahead and implement uh, gabriel cox's standards is that realistic well i you know perhaps I will give it a yes and a no. Um, once we have the standard out, I, w- I would imagine there will be people that are anticipating um, being obligated to implement it. And so I would think there would be those, particularly manufacturers, that wouldn't want an implementation date to come out and then somehow that, that um, limits their distribution capabilities because they haven't implemented the standard yet. So I, I would expect uh, industry participants to want to jump on board and get ahead of uh, regulation a little bit anyway, which they, they likely naturally will be ahead of regulation because of the pace at which regulation operates anyway. So um, I think everybody's being told you're going to need to do this anyway. And, and then on top of that, if you want to do waivers, if, if you that's kind of the 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 carrot out there that's dangling is I want a waiver for this. I want a waiver for BB loss. I want a waiver for over people. Well, if you if you're compliant with this standard and you add that to your application for a waiver, that I think that would uh, definitely enhance um, you know enhance your application quite a bit. So I mean, I'm a drone manufacturer and I and I want to implement the standard. Uh, what would I put on my aircraft to be safe? I mean, because we, we've heard a, a, an amazing number, particularly on the broadcast side, you know, 900 megahertz, 1040, Bluetooth 6, Wi-Fi. If, I'm a, if I want to make sure I'm, I'm going to be well covered by your standard, what do I put on my drone for the broadcast side? I get the LTE, but broadcast. So on the broadcast side, and that's that's one of the reasons we gave a couple of options. No, notice we I mentioned both Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. Those are also both compatible with all the existing phones that are out there today. Um, your Samsungs or Apples or whatever, they, they all have Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. And, and so that kind of drove us backwards from what's on the phones today and 
how 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 can you transmit in a way that would be compatible with them? Additionally, um, on addition on existing aircraft, a lot of them have Wi-Fi already, and and so possibly with a lot of them, let's say maybe the DJ some of the DJIs or some of the uniques or, or and, whatever. And most of those DJIs involve you using some type of tablet that's got your LTE Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. Yeah, they could they could possibly do all of those things with the tablet. And another another possibility though is that some of them have Wi-Fi directly directly on the aircraft themselves. And with a firmware upgrade on the aircraft, there's probably a lot of them that can be lit up just with that without having to attach any dongles or additional hardware at all. Um, and then I think the next generation probably would be some kind of little attachment or add-on device uh, for for retrofit purposes. And then the next generation, once it's manufactured into the device, uh, and perhaps the ones that already have Wi-Fi, perhaps they're done. But for ones that don't, they could add something like a Bluetooth module and um, and and be done with that. And the costs are pretty low. So, Gabriel, why don't you tell us um, as we kind of wrap up here? Can you tell us when the committee's recommendations may be made available to? to uh, folks outside of the committee environment? I'm, I'm hoping, so if we get our ballot at the end of the month and it passes ballot at the end of the month, and there's, there's, we have our own little parliamentary procedures within the committee right. that makes, the main thing is they make sure that, that negatives are heard. So if somebody votes against it, it has to be addressed, has to be heard. And then, but but at the same time, one organization can't necessarily veto the whole thing. There is an override procedure for that. So once we get through all of that in this next round of ballot, um, I'm I'm hoping the end of the month. And if it pass, once it passes final ballot, I'll have to check with with um, uh, with others in the committee. But I think once it passes final ballot, then it gets published um, almost immediately. Good deal. And, and so so maybe end of month, end, end of next month sometime. Very good. Very good. Wow. Didn't realize it was that close. That's that's pretty amazing. And, you know, Gabriel, if you can keep us in the loop, we'll uh, we'll make sure that that month when it comes out, we'll address that on, uh, on DroneBeat and we'll post that to the site so that people can get it because it is a remote ID. If that hasn't come across in all of these episodes, it's absolutely crucial to the industry and public safety, then uh, then maybe you weren't listening. Cause yeah, we'll it we'll crucial. post it on Inside Unmanned Systems uh, website. And, and one thing to keep in mind: in, in inside the remote ID standard, the the protocol we're using is called Open Drone ID Protocol. And there's an Open Drone ID Org website where you can go out and look at the protocol and see what fields are in it and so on. So you can get a pretty good preview of the contents, uh, of the details of the fields and so on just by going to opendroneid.org. Okay, well, maybe call. we'll post that on this episode's uh, thing. We always like giving our, our, our listeners homework. I'm not sure if they like it or not. But All right, so, Gabe, so we're at the end of our 30-minute uh, episode here. Thank you so much uh, for your interesting insight into how ASTM uh, is, is doing all this and how they can advance the safe integration of uh, UAS in the national airspace. What are we going to cover in our next series, Sean? James, in our next four-part series, we will cover all things urban air mobility. 
We have already got lined up some of the brightest minds in the world on urban air mobility, and I must admit I am really excited to have them on board inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. All right, drone taxis. How could air taxis? You can't get any more fun than that. Well, folks, this concludes Episode 12 and the final on our Remote ID Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat series. I'd like to thank our guest, Gabriel Cox, Chair of the F-3802 Remote ID Committee for ASTM, and wish him and the committee only the best. Thank you. Your uh, committee's Remote ID Standards recommendations can't come through quickly enough, although they sound like they're coming through pretty quickly. Thanks, Gabriel. You bet. I enjoyed it. That's a wrap for this week's edition of Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. I'm Richard Fisher, publisher of Inside Unmanned Systems, saying farewell from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C.